Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the latest on the rail protests. Will the blockades come down? And the premiers want things sped up. Also, a new CAMH study shows that student use of e-cigarettes is skyrocketing. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the public safety minister says that the BC RCMP have agreed to move off of the wet sweat and territory in limited form. Uh, in an internal letter to the RCMP, members obtained by uh, uh, by two members of RCMP obtained by Global News uh, says that the deputy commissioner uh, has sent a letter to the chiefs on Wednesday, telling them the need for a, uh, a small detachment near Houston, British Columbia, would be decreased if the chiefs and their supporters continue to grant access to coastal GasLink workers. Uh, wet sweat and hereditary chief tells Global News he's skeptical of the offer because he feels it should have come from the BC Premier or the Prime Minister uh, instead of through the RCMP themselves to stand down. Here is a clip. When they talk about the rule of law, it was a very narrow scope. And we knew that right off the bat. It was a very narrow scope. Now they're opening their eyes to the bigger scope of what the rule of law actually is. Now, provincially and federally, they will not take responsibility of asking them because we didn't ask them to stay. They didn't have our permission to voluntarily leave, and they voluntarily won't. All right, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy, Sin- uh, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for uh, Stephen Harper. <laughs> almost forgot there for a sec. Uh, Michael Tobe is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Your thoughts on where we are today? <laughs> Still pretty messy. Over two weeks and not a lot has been accomplished. I mean, obviously, you, you discussed this little bit of a switch that's happening with the RCMP on a very, very limited level in a very, very small community in northern B.C. Um, and as you heard from the Wet'suwet'en tribal representative, um, he's not pleased directly, as I assume that some people linked around him or not, because it didn't come from either NDP Premier John Horgan or, more importantly, Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So I think we're still in a very messy situation overall, and unfortunately we have a federal government who has done virtually nothing, Scott, to, to deal with this other than chatter. And chatter doesn't mean anything. It's easy to talk. It's easy to hold meetings, as he recently did with every other progressive party leader, with the exception of conservative leader Andrew Scheer, which I'm sure we'll touch on, for reasons that seem to be, to, at least to me, to be more childish than anything else. Um, but I don't really see this prime minister doing very much, other than spending most of the time during this whole uh, solidarity blockade abroad, wasting his time on a U.N. Security Council seat, which, quite frankly, based on the way the United Nations has become the past couple of decades, is a pretty meaningless endeavor overall, and the fact that he was actually going to still go to his trip through Barbados, which would have been, yes, part business, but also part pleasure, but he stopped that late last week when he realized that the tide was turning, at least in terms of the way Canadians were looking at the way he was handling this crisis. Um, it's a mess, Scott. It really is. And we are no closer to the end than we were, well, say, as of yesterday. Uh, should he not be personally meeting with uh, these hereditary chiefs up in British Columbia? Should he not personally go there? 
Well, of course. You're absolutely right. And the question really remains, why? Yeah. I mean, I know the, the obvious thing that everyone likes to skirt around, they're not discussing it directly, is we know that obviously this Liberal government is fearful to tackle this issue head-on because of the groups that are involved and the issues that are involved. But that's not what they've been promoting. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk and get in there. But they don't. And we've no, we, I mean, really, quite frankly, with this prime minister, who has been a weak and ineffective leader, that being Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, I'm not surprised he's been dancing around this issue because that's his strategy and that is his style. Now, I don't know, for example, if his cabinet ministers and others around him privately would like to do things differently. I can't speak with any authority, but it wouldn't shock me if at least a few of them, even if it's tiny, would probably prefer to do something else with this matter. But no, I mean, for him to sort of talk about the whole issue of having patience to deal with this, no, you can't have patience to deal with this. It should have been dealt with already. That was my next question, is did this blindside the Prime Minister's office? Did they not see this coming? I mean, my goodness, we've seen the layers and layers and layers of, uh, of, of consultation and, and approvals that the Trans Mountain has, got to, has had to go through. Why couldn't they see this coming? I don't know. I don't see how any government, no matter what they are, whatever political stripe, liberal or Tory, which are the only two governments we've ever had federally in this country, I don't see how they could have seen it unless they just had the biggest set of dark blinders. They just didn't pay attention. I mean, for heaven's sakes, as you probably have already discussed on your show, there was an Ipsos poll that just came out about a day or so ago, which directly showed that while... I think about three-quarters of all people who responded obviously believe that there should be some help given to Native Canadians in terms of their quality of life. 61% believe that this blockade should be ended immediately, and 53% directly said that the police should intervene. I mean, how could a federal government not be aware of this? Like, how could you be so blind in terms of what is going on that yes, Canadians don't want violence, no one's suggesting that, and no, they don't want vigilantism and whatever other nonsense you want to include with it. And let's they be want... serious, that's exactly what the anarchist protesters want. They want that on the front page so they can, they can use that for their social media agenda across the world. Yeah, I completely agree, absolutely. And I think most people... Well, let's put it this way. Most Canadians outside that bubble have realized what's going on, and they're fed up and they're furious with a prime minister who almost seems to have abdicated all of his leadership on this issue. Now, I know that you and I, and I've done it with others, we joke around and say that, well, really, Christia Freeland, the deputy prime minister, is really the person who's in charge because she has all these various powers on a day-to-day basis. You know, that's neither here nor there. We're, people are being half-joking and half-serious when it comes down to that issue. But for heaven's sakes, even she was caught up in it when she was actually restricted from entering a meeting in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. I believe she was going to the City Hall, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. So for heaven's sakes, you would really think that all of the powerful senior liberals in this government whether it be the prime minister or not, have seen the writing on the wall. They realize what's going on, and that the longer this protest lasts, the better it is or the greater the advantage is for the protesters and their radical activists and everyone supporting them to get more of what they want. Maybe not everything, but a hell of a lot more than they would have got had, say, the federal government not intervened you know, much earlier on 
certainly around the time when Ms. Freeland was blocked from entering a meeting, uh, cer- uh, provincial uh, ministers in B.C. were prevented from entering their legislature. If the Liberals had intervened at that point, or if they had had private discussions, for example, with the RCMP and police, which the Prime Minister was always able to do, he can't publicly order them to go in and deal with it, but he can certainly privately discuss things with them. If it had all been dealt with right at the very beginning, the protesters, and that being the radical, pro, you know, the radical activists, wouldn't have had enough time to sort of organize and arrange a strategy. Now they have, and we are really, maybe not necessarily at their mercy, but pretty close to it. You know, uh, getting back to when the Prime Minister came back from his uh, his two-week uh, search for a UN Security Council seat, um, I'm on vacation, I'm, I'm watching his speech on my device, and I right. cannot believe, exactly like Andrew Shear said, how weak it was. I'm yeah. yelling at my device, Michael. Yes. And then all of a sudden, uh, Andrew Shear comes on and says what, what everybody is thinking, uh, and then the Prime Minister chastises Andrew Shear as if he's 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 disciplining a a student in his drama class. That's right. And and says like, how dare you even bring up that point of view? And I'm thinking, my goodness, the man's not standing up screaming racial uh, <laughs> overtones here. The guy is asking questions, and you're chastising for uh, him for it. And then when you're you're spewing uh, patience and understanding, you block Andrew Shear from a meeting. I know, it's completely preposterous. And yes, I know that the racist angle was also used by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. He was wrong to do it too. But the Prime Minister has acted so irresponsibly. I touched. I just don't think he has the... He doesn't have the capacity to do this. He just does not have the capacity his father did. Well, no, he does. Well, I mean, I mean, that's been clear since the very start. Yeah. That was clear when he was first elected to politics, long before he became liberal leader. That's been clear since the very first day um, that he actually took over as liberal leader in 2015. So, oh, sorry, pardon me, 2013. My apologies. Um, so we know that this has been going on for quite a while. The problem is that. For a period of time, and, you know, we can go back to last year's federal election, we can throw a whole lot of things into the stew, there have just been a lot of Canadians who have tried to overlook or ignore the enormous amount of problems and issues and inadequacies that this prime minister actually has and keep saying to themselves, well, it can't be all that bad. You know, even, with all, even though he's mediocre, everything will be okay. Well, I think now that Canadians are starting to realize that, yeah, democratically, Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015 and 2019. There's no question about that. But he's now down to a minority government. He thinks he's still operating a majority government, which, by the way, he doesn't have the strength of character or the leadership ability to do, unlike, for example, Stephen Harper, who ran two of them in a row, but ran them like a majority government, but with strong, intelligent leadership. Whether you like the guy or not, whether you respected his ideas or not, you knew that we had a leader in charge. With Justin Trudeau, we just have an actor. That's all we actually have, a little puppet who is basically sitting there. And I think Canadians are now starting to realize during this crisis that maybe all the fears and concerns and issues that they've had with this prime minister, which whether they admit it publicly or privately, a lot of Canadians have, including people who voted for him, they're all coming to fruition, 
And now that it's bubbling on the surface, I think they realize that this guy just isn't handling things properly, period. But the way he sold Truth and Reconciliation, the way he used the indigenous community to embrace votes, uh, going to honor all 98 Truth and Reconciliation recommendations or look at them, whatever his choice of words were, and then to not show up to uh, to these uh, back in the country in regard to these rail protests for two weeks after they've started, and then he still has not got his rear end up to British Columbia to meet with these people. This is what he sold during the election. And then he stands up and says, well, you know, we've just got to be patient with all of this. What is he waiting to happen? Oh, God knows what he's waiting to happen. He's just, I think he wants to close his eyes and magically believe it'll all go away. Much like, remember this whole thing about the deficit will just magically disappear. I think this is the style that he likes, that if all these problems aren't happening and I just cover my ears and cover my eyes and don't listen to things, it'll all disappear and everybody will love me again. And maybe it's not that, but you know, unfortunately... He has put himself in the, this position enough time yeah. that you almost wonder if way, way, way back in his mind, that's what he's actually hoping. Well, guess what? If he is, and I'm not saying that he is, but if he is, that's not how leadership works. And this prime minister should know it. He's been in office long enough. His feet are wet enough. He now sort of understands what's going on, even if really, quite frankly, he's not always involved this is not the way you run a country. And most importantly, this is not the way a world leader manages a crisis. Hmm. And for God's sake, if Canadians can't figure this out by now, so help us. I don't know what will happen if another election is called, either because this government falls due to the impending crisis that's happening, which may or may not happen. It's unlikely, but yeah. who knows. Or down the road a couple of years when he, this minority government will eventually fall and we have to go back to the electorate. Because, God, seriously, I hope people start thinking about these things and don't forget issues like this, because this is the sort of competency that we are not experiencing with our prime minister. It does matter. Uh, what about Jody Wilson-Raybould? She's been on the, some news programs of late saying she's yes. offered to help. Why doesn't he reach out to that? <laughs> well, that's just one easy phrase, NSC Lovelin. We know why he's not reaching out for that. He has no interest in dealing with her, and while she certainly is doing the right thing by saying that, look, I'm open to discussing it, I would be happy to be part of the conversation and, you know, involve myself, produce ideas, suggestions, etc., he doesn't want anything to do with her. And whether you like Jody Wilson-Raybould or not, or whether you agree with the way she handles things, I don't think there's any question, Scott, that she would be an important component and, quite frankly, an improvement over what we're seeing, because at least she has these connections, these contacts, these ideas, and the things that she's done because of her background, because of her interests, her legal background as well would be helpful. There's a lot of things that Jody Wilson-Raybould could do to help us. So if this is really supposed to be a united effort to get rid of these blockades, then she should be invited. But quite frankly, when you look at the fact that Trudeau, all he met with were progressive leaders who all basically follow the same uh, speaking lines or ideas that the current government has, it's really disappointing. 
Jody Wilson-Raybould should be a part of it. I agree. Um, I, I was talking to Ellis Ross, uh, MLA for Skeena, way back when. He said this is not Canada's problem. This is not between the Indigenous community and Canada. It's between the Indigenous community, that being the hereditary chiefs and the elected band council mm-hmm. on who will represent the Indigenous community. Why are we always positioning this like it's the country against the Indigenous community? Because it's an easy narrative. It's not the right one, I agree with you, but it's just the easiest narrative. And to be perfectly honest, when organizations, media or otherwise, look at a problem like this, they always try to pick who is the us and who is the them, and they pick the biggest known names. But yeah, I agree. And look, the, um, the, that native tribe as well, there is a very, very big difference between their band council and their hereditary chiefs in terms of what they believe. The band council is in favor of, of the pipeline yeah. being built, the coastal Gulf link, gas link, and they want it in there. They've even signed a sharing agreement, which will benefit them financially yeah. with the provincial government. I mean, that's something that would actually help their community. It's the five hereditary chiefs who, unfortunately, based on the way that the hierarchy of that particular tribe operates, it's the hereditary chiefs who manage the... Yeah as I now understand it, because even I didn't know exactly, the 13 houses related to this tribe, they're the ones who have, shall we say, more authority in terms of the positioning of where it's going to go and what they're going to believe in or what they're going to support versus the band council, who you would think naturally enormous amount of impact, but they don't. And that's what's happening. It's that internal fight that's causing a lot of trouble and unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be an end to it either. Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. An internal letter to the RCMP members obtained by Global News uh, and has now been confirmed that uh, uh, RCMP were uh, willing to pull down a uh, uh, and move back their position uh, from uh, the protests in along the wet uh, Suetan lands. Uh, that they would be decreased if the chiefs and their supporters continue to grant access to coastal gas line, uh, gas link workers. However, hereditary chief said uh, skeptical about the offer, and it looks like that is not going to be accepted at this point. Let's bring in Danielle Ballon, professor, director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, McGill University, and with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for the invitation. So first of all, an overview, your thought on where we are now. Well, it's it's a very difficult situation, and uh, I, I'm not sure we are making that much progress now. I think there is a, a slight change of tone on the part of government. I just uh, heard what Bill Blair said uh, maybe an hour ago, and it seems that it's uh, the tone is a bit more firm than uh, um, you know what we have heard so far from uh, other uh, liberal office, officials, including Justin Trudeau. So you know, it's uh, there is a lot of discontent on uh, on both sides of this situation, and uh, I think the pressure is on the government to deliver and to uh, to reach some form of um, of agreement to uh, move things forward. Otherwise, uh, I think they um, they will have to change their strategy. Uh, the RCMP have agreed to move their position back from where the protesters are. It doesn't appear that that is going to be enough. Um, 
again, uh, the hereditary chief saying that uh, one of the hereditary chiefs saying that this should have come from the prime minister or the premier rather than uh, the RCMP. Should the prime minister be there considering what he has promised and and how he has wooed the indigenous vote over the years and such? Should he not be in British Columbia now, at least for a face to face meeting of some sort? Well, it's risky. I think they, they, they might consider this if they, uh, they think there is a good chance that it will actually work. Right now, it doesn't seem that there is much trust. Um, um, you know, the, the, the hereditary chiefs don't seem to trust the government. Um, I think that the, this letter from the RCMP is a step in the right direction. Um, and, and at some point, the, the liberals will have to... Uh, Increase pressure on the uh, the hereditary chiefs and tell them that uh, you know this cannot last forever. This has to come. You know they are they are willing to talk, but that this should actually lead to some results. And and um, and so the prime minister should be certainly proactive. Uh, at the same time, they don't want him to go there and then uh, lose face and, and just be humiliated or, or come back with nothing in terms of results. And so I think that's quite uh, risky. I mean, if he doesn't go there, it's risky. If he, if he does, it's risky too. So it's, um, it's a situation that um, uh, is, um, uh, is now becoming um, really uh, problematic for the government. And there is in the House of Commons today... Uh, of course, it's opposition day, so a lot of uh, discussion about this. There's a conservative motion also to condemn these protests, so we'll see what happens with that. But certainly the, oppos- the opposition and the premiers are pressuring uh, Justin Trudeau and, and his government to to act swiftly to actually end this. But this is not... Uh, this is not easy, and I think that what the conservatives have been saying, uh, Andrew Scheer, but also uh, Peter McKay, sometimes is actually um, basically adding fuel to the fire. So, um, and I don't think that the idea that you should just send police everywhere right now that would solve this that could actually uh, exacerbate the problem. You know, I I think that, you know, Danielle, it seems to be that's the discussion that the Prime Minister has presented. We either Mm -hmm. exercise patience and understanding or you go in and crack heads. I don't think anyone's looking for that. I don't. I think everybody remembers Oka. Everybody remembers mm-hmm. Ipperwash. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure one of the reasons the OPP is standing down the way they are is for those reasons. Absolutely. So, yes, but I where agree. is the happy medium? Nobody's saying go in and and open fire. But on the other hand, you know, uh, again, I think if he had showed his face up in British Columbia, at least the optics are he's trying to get a meeting with them. Um, yeah. You said that was risky. Why is that risky to do? Well, if he goes there and he comes back without any results, uh, he will be his position will be even weaker. I think I think the tone that, that Bill Blair adopted the, this morning is more firm. I think the the prime minister should adopt such a tone and say, uh, "Okay, I'm willing to go there, but we need to have clear deadlines and, and a clear process." And and you know, I will not go there just to. Uh, um, just to for a photo op, actually want to get results, and and you have to put really clear proposals on the table. Uh, but you don't go there um, if you don't have any commitment on their part to actually resolve the situation. So that's why I'm saying I think he should go there if the basic conditions are met. But if he goes there and nothing is done, um, that won't help, and that really will make make him look even weaker. 
Uh, any reason to believe that uh, any conditions can be met? What are those conditions? From what we understand, it's it's four to five of the 12 hereditary chiefs that are not on board. The rest of the 12 are on board. Uh, so uh, from what I understand, they're not budging either way. So what kind of condition can be met? Do we have any idea exactly what they want that would resolve this other than a veto of the pipeline itself. Exactly. So I think that that needs to be really clarified. Um, I do agree that it's very hard to uh, to bargain with uh, divided communities and and who has the authority here. And we have this discussion between you know the elected chiefs, so the band chiefs, and then the hereditary you know the hereditary chiefs. And 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 even among hereditary chiefs, there is uh, dissensus. Uh, so, so it's um, it, it, it's really uh, um, you know there are line mines everywhere <laughs> when we deal with that situation, um, and so that's why we have to be cautious. At the same time, uh, I think you need to bargain in a position of strength and saying, you know, clarify your conditions. We we'll try to meet some of them, but you need to uh, you need to tell us exactly what you will do if we. Uh, we accept some of these conditions because the time, you know, time's flying and it's, it's the situation is, uh, is getting worse and worse. And I believe one of the reasons we're not hearing those conditions now or we're not there yet is, again, because of the divisiveness between the elected band councils and the hereditary chiefs within the indigenous community. I had Alice Ross, an MLA from Skeena, B.C. on, who's a former band chief, and said, uh, this is not Canada's problem. This is not a problem between Canada and the indigenous community. This is a problem within the indigenous community between elected band councils and hereditary chiefs on who speaks for the community. Yes, absolutely. The- why is it why is it not painted as that? Even the prime minister is painting this like we have to do more to look after our indigenous community. Well, we are. We're looking after the majority of them. There's four out of these 12 that are causing this situation. So why is it not being presented that way as opposed to we just have to sit down and be patient because we haven't been very nice to our indigenous community over the years? Yeah, I think that a change of tone would be helpful here. But to say, you know, we know there are divisions within the communities. We want to actually have a dialogue and we want to continue this process of reconciliation. But at the same time, the current situation uh, with all these blockades is not acceptable. And, and that's, not, uh, that's not helping the situation. That's making thing, things worse. And, and so I think that you, you need to have a, a, a different tone. I don't think you should just talk about bringing the police in. As you said earlier, it's not this or that in the sense that it's just appeasement or uh, we bring the uh, And, and the let's be honest in. here, Danielle. Yeah. Or Daniel, if, 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 if the police did go in and started making violent arrests, the uh, anarchist uh, uh, anti-pipeline segment of this protest that are mixing in with the locals, that's exactly what they want. They want that image so they can use that in their worldwide media agenda. So, I mean, the fact that the police are showing restraint is exactly what they should be doing because a lot of these protesters are just waiting for the police to go in there and start cracking heads because that's what they want to expose in 
in the media. So, I, I mean... I, and we I, know that. The police knows that. And the police right. doesn't want to intervene unless there is very strong yeah. political support for that. And it's part of a, a, a well-organized plan. Uh, because if you, you intervene also uh, one different location and then, you know, that could trigger more protests elsewhere. Um, and, and so that's, that's, really, um, that's really an issue. And, and you have new protests. There's one in the Montreal area, now Saint-Lambert, that just, I think, started yesterday. Um, and, and so this could, you know, you can have, this could mushroom and it can get worse. So th- this is why it's a, it's a difficult situation to deal with, in part because, uh, the interlocutor here, the people we are speaking with, dealing with, uh, it's not always clear, you know, wh- what the demands are because there's not always consensus on on the indigenous side because it's extremely heterogeneous, and and so it's hard to uh, to bargain in that uh, that situation. Uh, but I agree that the prime minister has to uh, to take bold actions because the opposition and the premiers are really asking for that. And so far, it's been lacking. But it's it's again, it's it's hard for the prime minister to to move forward um, if it's not really clear what what demands he has to answer. And right now, they are trying to clarify, you know, what, what is demanded. And and uh, so, really, this is a debate. This is a division within the indigenous community. Why is it always being presented as if it's a debate, a division between Canada and the indigenous communities? And are we naive as a country to think we can go into the indigenous community and solve the issues they have between their elected band council and their hereditary chiefs? That's not well, our business. Well, that's up yes to them. And no, because the 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 band councils, it's it's part of the Indian Act. It's the uh, yeah, it's you yeah. know we created the system. Yeah, we created the system, yeah. <laughs> and so we cannot say it, it has nothing yeah. to do with us because it's it's our laws. Uh, it's our institutions. So yeah, but are, let's remember the majority. But the majority of the indigenous communities support that system. The majority of the indigenous yeah. communities support these pipelines. It's it's four out of twelve hereditary chiefs that are setting this off across the country, armed with the backing of some environmental protesters, anti-pipeline protesters who are very well funded. So, at what point again does the prime minister stand up and say? I want to represent the majority of the indigenous community, not necessarily small uh, factions that, that, that operate on on the on the uh, on the fringes, uh, you know. And he makes it sound by sticking up for one that he's turning his back on the majority, when in fact that's you know yeah. it's the, the majority the of indigenous that communities that want how much support these people have within their own communities. So yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so and so that's why it's, it's so. Uh, what's it's the responsibility to the indigenous community to try to get one voice together so we can move this all forward. Yeah, but it's hard to for people yeah. to get the voice together. It's like you say, well, Canada should have a voice together. We don't yeah. always agree yeah. on no. issues. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's also a, um, it's a constellation of different uh, nations and, and, and groups within different nations, and it's, it's, it's very complex. So um, that's why it's, the situation is so... Um, so difficult to not just actually, uh, you know, address, but assess. <laughs> and and um, it's, um, I, I hope that the, pri- the Prime Minister will be able to um, have a meeting with uh, some of these leaders, and, but in, in a context where this can actually reach some form of, um, of resolution, because um, at some point this, this situation, the more it lasts, the more divisive it becomes, and the more people... Uh, uh, become upset. 
mm-hmm. and and that is um, that is not a situation that uh, that we want, and and that is really uh, I think a, a major challenge. And I understand that uh, people are getting really upset. Um, is this only creating more divisiveness within the community? What can we do to help that? I mean, is it just a case of, of abolishing the, uh, the Indian Act and, and, uh, the elected band council and such? I mean, how, how? Well, you cannot, uh, just, that's the exactly. problem. Like we tried in 1969, the white, you know, there, there was a white paper and, and the, the, by, it was, you know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was behind this. And and um, and it, the idea was to just abolish the Indian Act, but I think you cannot just abolish the Indian Act without creating new institutions to replace it, the void that it will create to just abolish it. And that's something that cannot be done unilaterally. You have to discuss with indigenous peoples and and <laughs> how can we how can we... within uh, within yeah. indigenous. Uh, communities about the way forward, this takes a lot of time and it's complicated. If we can't arrive at consensus under the current system, is there any reason to think uh, the indigenous community can can come to a consensus on how to lead and, and have one voice? Well, I think you can. I think the idea that there will be a grand bargain and that will solve this issue once and for all across the country is uh, is is kind of utopian at this point. I think there is. It's important to you know deal um, with with specific groups um, and and try to. There was an agreement, for example, earlier this week between the Quebec government and the Cree in northern Quebec. So you have all sorts of agreements and actually positive things that are happening too. But because it's such a diverse uh, landscape, uh, um, you know. It's hard to 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 address all these problems uh, at once. So you have to you can strike different deals and you can bargain and discuss with different groups, uh, discussion with between the federal government and specific groups and also provincial governments and specific groups. And that's happening now. Um, so so the protests that we are uh, we are seeing now should not, um, uh, you know, hide the fact that in in some areas we are actually making progress. Um, and these protests should not hide that. There is hope uh, um, at the local level. There are some communities that are that are actually quite successful, and some uh, natural resource projects that are moving forward. Um, so um, we should keep that in mind and not uh, and and take a more longer term perspective. But it's true that in the short run, I think that um, results are are lacking on the part of the government because it's such a hard situation. But uh, to deal with, but they they need to be a bit um, more, um, I think, a bit more firm in their their tone and approach, and 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 um, um, really, uh, if the prime minister can go to BC to 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 discuss with uh, with members of the community, that that will be a positive step. But the, the conditions have to be on the ground so that this is actually uh, something that could lead to a resolution and not just a photo op that will lead nowhere. Daniel Ballon has been with us, Professor, Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada at McGill University. Daniel, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A CAMH study shows that uh, the student use of e-cigarettes and cannabis edibles in the province on the rise. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Tara Elton Marshall is with us, co-lead on the study, Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and is with us now. Tara, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thank you. Tara, how did something that was designed and supposed to help people quit smoking actually get kids hooked on vaping? Well, we've seen um, a lot of changes happening between 2017 when we saw the initial rates of e-cigarette use. So that was when rates were about 11%. And now uh, when we went back in 2019, the rates had doubled to 23%. And I think uh, one of the potential drivers of that is the fact that they started um, allowing nicotine in the e-cigarettes. And also that they allowed Juul on the market. So uh, you may have heard of Juul. It's a nicotine salt-based e-cigarette. It looks like a USB device. And it's something that we had seen happen in the United States where they had uh, allowed Juul into the market. And all of a sudden, uh, it became extremely popular with young people. And I think that may be part of what we're seeing here. What is the status of Juul now? Uh, so it's still available on the market, um, and uh, we're seeing other devices similar to Juul, so it's not just Juul. Uh, Vipe is one, for example. Um, and we're seeing a lot more advertising happening uh, where they're really trying to pitch this as being um, basically a safe product. And I think that young people are not getting the message that although they may be less harmful than, than cigarettes, um, they're still harmful. They're, they still have a lot of chemicals in them. We don't know the long-term health effects. And there are concerns about the nicotine exposure that these young people are, are being exposed to. Um, now, are these not, uh, as a result, the way the regulations are now, and I, and I believe this was just recently changed, that these, that, 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 that these now fall under the same category as selling tobacco as far as advertising and that sort of thing? So uh, right now, they uh, recently Ontario banned their advertising in uh, convenience stores and gas stations, but we still have advertising on billboards um, and in other locations. We need to do more about the advertising, particularly where young people can access it. And another thing that we need to consider is the fact that there are flavors out there that are really appealing to young people. So candy flavored, cake flavored, mm. uh, those types of products shouldn't be accessible to young people. Uh, So at the end of the day, these should have the exact same restrictions on them, these products, as tobacco does, no? Yes, I I do think that more restrictions are needed. And so they're not there yet. They're not in the same place that tobacco is at this point. There there are more things that we can do. So for example, we've um, taxed tobacco. Um, That's been found to be a way to get young people not to use it. And we could be putting higher taxes on e-cigarettes, for example. Uh, we certainly remember the campaigns that, that have gone on for the last uh, well, several decades now, uh, trying to get people to stop smoking. Uh, and we've seen smoking rates certainly decline over time. How do you tackle this now? Well, first I want to say one of the good news stories out of um, our report is the fact that tobacco is at its lowest level yet. Mm. So it was only 5% of youth who had uh, used tobacco in the last year. Uh, so so we can try to start to use the strategies that we use with tobacco with e-cigarettes, but we also are dealing with a whole other uh, issue here because of the fact that there, there's a lot of um, misinformation out there about to what extent these products are harmful. Uh, there's debate about whether or not uh, they're less harmful than cigarettes, but, but the consensus really is that they are less harmful for cigarettes, but 
scientists agree that young people just should not be using them. Uh, well, it, we certainly eventually got the message with tobacco. Is it going to take a couple of decades to get this message out as well? Well, hopefully not. Hopefully uh, we can start implementing stronger regulations and um, and. Uh, public health com- campaigns where we inform young people about the risks of using e-cigarettes. How do you explain the drop in tobacco? Yeah, is the drop in tobacco at the rise of uh, e-cigarettes and vaping, do you think? Uh, is one just becoming more fashionable than the other? Is one going down and the other one going up at each other's expense? I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily that people are using e-cigarettes instead of tobacco because we haven't seen a, a huge drop uh, in the last few years in, in terms of tobacco. It has been relatively low over the last few years. Um, and I think e-cigarettes are its own thing. It's becoming more fashionable for sure. Uh, but we haven't seen the levels of tobacco cigarette smoking uh, that we're seeing for e-cigarette smoking in a really long time. Right. So um, what are they putting in? Uh, what sort of products are they putting in these vaporizers? Do they know what they're putting in them? Uh, is it nicotine-based stuff? Is it flavored-based stuff? Is it THC-based stuff? What are they putting in these? Do we know? Well, there's a lot of variability. So uh, there are some, like the Juul product that I was telling you about, that contain nicotine salt. And the concern with those are that it delivers a, a much bigger hit of nicotine, but that it can also have really high levels of nicotine. And that's why we need to consider things like regulating how much nicotine are in these products. Um, there are products on the market uh, that are that are different, uh, and it is possible to vape cannabis, uh, which is a whole other separate issue from e-cigarettes, and which is something that we also looked at in the survey. And we did find uh, that vaping cannabis has increased um, from five to ten percent. Hmm. Um, as far as getting kids off of vaping. Uh, and considering what has been done with tobacco, uh, do you see, is this just about heading, hitting this head on with just a series of, of ads exactly like you would market against uh, tobacco advertising? Does, it, this, does this message have to be stepped up to that extent that this is the new smoking, this is the new tobacco? That's the message that needs to be sold here. Uh, it's really tricky because, on the other hand, you don't want to discourage adult smokers who could yeah. um, potentially use e-cigarettes to quit from using those products. Mm-hmm. So it's about getting the right messaging out, but it's also about having the right regulations that that help with that. So not having the advertising, not having the flavoring, lowering or capping the amount of nicotine that can be in the product. All it needs to be a real multi-pronged approach. And a lot of these, I understand, vaporizers or the, the vaping accessories and stuff are, are produced or are sold by tobacco manufacturing companies. Is that valid? Uh, I believe that that is the case. Um, so is this a provincial jurisdiction? Is this a provincial regulation? Is this something that should be done federally? How do we do this province to province? How do we compare to other provinces? So, so there are some provinces that have already started to take steps in terms of limiting the amount of nicotine in, in these products. 
Um, and uh, Ontario has made um, some uh, plans where they will be limiting the amount of nicotine as well. Uh, so they're following suit with other provinces. Uh, they have banned the advertising in convenience stores and gas stations. Um, so we're starting to make headway. Health Canada, so at the federal level, is considering some ad bans. Um, shouldn't so this be something really that's has- shouldn't this be something that's nationwide? It's consistent from province to province. Uh, it depends on who has the jurisdiction over what type of laws that they're implementing, right? So, for example, taxation is usually at the provincial level. So uh, it just depends on the regulation. I think it needs to come from both levels of government. Where do you see this going in the short term? Um, that's a good question, and, and it's hard to say. Um, I think it's really important that we actually keep monitoring this given that we saw such a dramatic increase, and not only a dramatic increase in terms of the prevalence, but the other thing that was concerning was that we were seeing an increase in the number of adolescents who said that they were using e-cigarettes weekly or daily. So that went from 3% to 13%. So it's really important that we keep monitoring this. Is there a province or jurisdiction, state, whatever, that's doing this right? Uh, I think that we could borrow a little bit from very different markets. I think that BC has been doing a little bit more in terms of um, leading the way. Uh, And uh, we see um, in England that they have had restrictions on the levels of nicotine. So there are other jurisdictions where we can start to look at what we could potentially do. What advice would you give to teens, kids, I guess, uh, or even their parents in regard to all of this? Uh, I think that this is the same advice I would give for any drug use to parents, and that is that you should talk to your to your children starting from a young age um, because it's important to talk to them before they actually start experimenting with these drugs. Have a very open dialogue with your child so that they feel that they can come to you and tell you about what they're seeing, um, about uh, if they have friends who are using e-cigarettes, um, and have a discussion with them where you're not trying to scare them, but where where you let them know the facts um, and let them know that they can come to you. And also remember that, you know, you are also a model for their behavior. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to imitate you. So if you're using e-cigarettes, they're more likely to do that as well. Uh, and, you know, we we should also stress, don't wait for this issue to be communicating with your kids. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the better lines of communication you have from a very early age, it enables you to, to handle a lot of these situations, not just vaping. Exactly. Where do you, do you expect any sort of regulation from government in the near future on this? Yeah, I think that there's a growing realization that we're suddenly seeing these increases. Um, this is in Ontario, but I think there's been other research coming out across Canada pointing to the need for more regulation, and there certainly has been a lot of discussion about what should be done. So we're hopeful that um, this can help contribute to the discussion. What about if we just tax the bejeebers out of this stuff? Again, you talked about others that were trying to use it as, as a device to get off smoking and such, but is there some way that you know you can be uh, perhaps administered this through your doctor and, and you could avoid those taxes, but to the rest who are you doing this recreationally, it's a different scenario. It's just like booze or... Or, or cigarettes, for that matter. 
It's a really tricky issue because you don't want to uh, make it so difficult that the people that might benefit from it can't access it easily. Um, but at the same time, we want to figure out better ways to restrict access to youth and, and ways that are not so appealing to youth. How concerned are you with the legalization of cannabis and how this mixes into this whole discussion? Yeah, well, we actually looked at the legalization of cannabis, and we had some of the first data uh, that came out right after legalization in Ontario. And what we found is that cannabis uh, prevalence didn't actually go up significantly. So before legalization, the rate was 19%, and after legalization, it was 22%. So it wasn't statistically significantly different. Um, But it's important to note that we were asking students about cannabis use not long after legalization happened. Mm. And the legalization was pretty slow in terms of its rollout. So we didn't see um, stores, uh, brick and mortar stores opening until about April. And even then it was only in certain locations. So it will be really important to go back and see what's happening over a longer period of time. Do you, um, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say that um, it's also important to note that it's not that adolescents aren't using cannabis. So if you look at grade 12 students, 40% had used cannabis in the last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, uh, it's important to note that we did see some increases in the ways that that adolescents are using cannabis. So I mentioned the the vaping Mm -hmm. cannabis had increased, but also edibles increased. So it went from 11 to 13%. Are you concerned that legalization is introducing new customers rather than curbing the blue mar- uh, black market, especially with this lack of supply that started all of this? Uh, well, we haven't seen that from our data because we didn't see any significant increases. But again, I think it will be important to monitor over time, particularly uh, since uh, edibles seem to be appealing to youth, given that we saw an increase. And edibles came on the market in December of this year. So we haven't really been able to look after right. that came on the mar- market. Dr. Tara Elton Marshall is with us, co-lead on the study Center for Addiction and Mental Health. A new CAMH study shows that student use of e-cigarettes and cannabis edibles in the province on the rise. Tara, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.